U.S. President Biden and Vice President Harris are proposing yet another billion-dollar plan for Central America. This time, this $3.9 billion plan will allegedly address the real root causes of migration. But as you all know, after years of promises made and promises broken, I, along with many others, have very serious doubts. No one can argue that the Biden White House is ignorant of these issues. For years, Biden served as a chairman of the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs. As vice president, he was Obama's point man on Latin America, and he similarly tasked his vice president, Kamala Harris, to lead this file. In the legislative branch, congressional representatives have been informed of the issues going on in Central America. In March of this year, and in response to the Biden-Harris plan, several U.S.-based solidarity organizations, including Witness for Peace, School of the Americas Watch, NISQA, and CISPIS, joined forces and coordinated a really incredible congressional delegation to Central America. From the presidential palace in Tegucigalpa, to the site of the forced disappearances of the four Garifuna men, to encampments protesting against a U.S. mining company, U.S. congressional representatives and U.S.-based activists learned from the mouths of those most affected about the role of U.S. foreign policy in Central America and the real reasons why people flee. Welcome to the Honduras Now podcast. This podcast shares human rights stories from Honduras and connects them with global issues and North American policy. I'm your host, Karen Spring, a longtime human rights activist that has lived in Honduras for over a decade. Thanks so much for listening. Representative Ilhan Omar from Minnesota was the lead on the trip. She invited several of her congressional colleagues to visit Honduras and Guatemala. The delegation was called Unearthing the Real Root Causes of Mass Migration from Central America, and it sought to investigate migration and the role of U.S. foreign policy in the region. Representative Omar was joined by Representative Cori Bush from Missouri, Rep. Chuy Garcia from Illinois, and Congressman Jamal Bowman from New York. The legislative director for Representative Jan Schakowsky, Kate Durkin, was also on the trip, as were several congressional staffers that worked with the offices I mentioned above. It was an amazing trip, and it was so timely. The representatives were coming to the region just as Biden and Harris were proposing this billion-dollar call to action to address what they call the root causes. We'll touch on this plan, a plan that is unfortunately more of the same for Central America a little later in this episode. I was able to join the congressional representatives and several amazing activists that were part of the organizing groups of the delegation. I helped with the coordination of the Honduras leg of the trip, which also included a meeting with President Xiomara Castro and her cabinet, the President of Congress, Luis Redondo, and the International Affairs Committee in Congress. Following these meetings, we left to visit grassroots movements, including Copin, Ofrene, the Broad Movement for Dignity and Justice, amongst others. Several grassroots groups also came up from El Salvador to meet and talk to the delegation here in Honduras. Now, after Honduras and after the Honduras leg of the trip, 
the delegation went to Guatemala to speak with indigenous communities fighting mining and hydroelectric dams, such as La Puya, human rights organizations, and communities affected by the genocide in Guatemala. After the delegation left the region, there has been lots of follow-up between the participating organizations, the participants of the trip, and the congressional offices. Today, I'd like to share with you the report back that several activists that were on the trip presented once they were back in the United States. All are members of the Latin American diaspora living in the United States. Before I share their presentations and discussions, I'd like to introduce the activists you'll be hearing from. Maria Jose Mendez, or Majo, as you will hear throughout this episode, is a Witness for Peace board member. She's a junior fellow at the Harvard Society of Fellows and assistant professor in the political science department at the University of Toronto. Her research focuses on decolonial feminist struggles and the politics of organized violence in Central America. The next person is Jonathan Gomez, who is the Latin American program coordinator for the Chicago Religious Leadership Network on Latin America. Jonathan is a human rights defender, photographer, artist, educator, and father from Guatemala City. And last, but certainly not least, Alison Lira is the director of the Honduras program for the Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective. She has a master's in conflict resolution and reconciliation from Trinity College, Dublin. And in the past, Alison's engaged in peace building and human rights research and advocacy in Northern Ireland and Palestine. The following are parts or sections of the whole presentation. I will link to the full YouTube recording of the entire report back in the show notes. Now, the first part of what I'm going to play is Maho discussing the Biden-Harris plan for Central America. And second is Jonathan, Allison, and Maho discussing their thoughts, lessons, and experiences while on the congressional delegation in Honduras and Guatemala. Now, without further ado, here is Maho kicking it off. The delegation we participated on was named Unearthing the Real Root Causes of Mass Migration from Central America. And it was partly a reaction to the U.S. strategy for addressing the root causes of migration in Central America. So let me tell you a bit about this strategy. And this strategy is the Biden-Harris administration's blueprint for dealing with irregular migration coming from the region. And it identifies corruption, uh, violence, poverty, crime as some of the major reasons why Hondurans, Guatemalans, and Salvadorans are leaving their countries. And to address these problems, the strategy proposes various solutions. And some of them include mobilizing private sector investment, addressing creating anti-corruption task forces, and also professionalizing security forces in, in the three countries. And this plan, it, it seems nuanced, uh, you know, a plan that seeks to address the, the root causes of migration um, sounds like a nuanced plan, right? Um, and also in light of the Trump administration's more reactive and, and punitive approach to migration, it, it's a plan that seems to differ greatly from that kind of agenda. You know, Trump administration's agenda included family separations. Um, so there's a sense that this plan is, is much better than what we had in the past and what the U.S. had in the past. Um, however, this strategy is still part of a long-term bipartisan strategy to secure U.S. hegemony in the region. And, and more problematically, it also ignores the role that the United States has played in perpetuating many of the problems that it identifies in the region as being some of the root causes. Um, so one, one key takeaway of our trip to Central America was 
that the solutions that are proposed in this plan are paradoxically some of the drivers of migration. So that the root causes and also the solutions that are proposed to these root causes within this plan are actually some of what is driving people to migrate. And, and this, is, this is a bit paradoxical. So let me unfold this with, um, with examples from the delegation. During, during this trip, uh, we heard from courageous land defenders in Honduras and Guatemala about how US-backed mega development projects, for instance, such as hydroelectric dams and also mine projects um, have resulted in mass impoverishment and also tremendous communal displacement. And you know, this taught us that the private investment solution that is at the core of the current Biden-Harris administration's plan to address migration is very problematic uh, because it's an approach that the U.S. is proposing as a solution to migration, but it's really a continuation of what the United States has been doing for decades in Central America. And what, what has the U.S. been doing for decades in Central America? It has been promoting neoliberal experiments that largely benefit private sectors and private investors at the expense of impoverished workers and peasants, uh, many of whom are indigenous. So when we met with Copin in Honduras, for example, and, and we shared some of the content of the strategy, it's, it's also interesting to know that a lot of, of, of the partners, the, social, the popular social movements we met with, had no idea um, what was contained in this plan. And when we shared some of the, you know, especially this aspect about private investment being seen as a solution to migration, one, one uh, member um, expressed something that I think really just captures uh, what some of us felt about this plan. And, uh, you know, when we were discussing this with them, he said, oh, we're screwed. So our trip has really encouraged uh, this critical attitude towards the uh, the Biden-Harris plan uh, to address migration in Central America. And, and so today we we want to reflect on some of our reservations based on, on the generous conversations that various grassroots movements and political leaders had with us during our trip. So let's, let's move to that. Um, so three big questions we want to address. Allison will lead one, Jonathan will lead one, and, and I'll start us off with, uh, with one question. You know, what we want is to share a little bit more about, we, about what we learned during the, the delegations. So the first, uh, a lot of us who went on this delegation come from Central America or part of the Caribbean diaspora um, or, or the Latin American diaspora. And, uh, you know, we participated with, with a lot of background knowledge about the ways the United States has financed military repression in the region through initiatives like the Alliance for Prosperity and also CARSI. And, uh, and so the, the first question I have both for, for Alice and Jonathan, and I'll come back to this and, and wrap up this section is, what, what were some of the things that, that surprised you from this delegation? Or also just, you know, what, what did you learn that was new or what did this delegation reinforce for you in terms of the way in which the United States sponsors militarization in the region? I'm from Guatemala, I was born in Guatemala. Um, the 80s and I came to age in the United States. I've been living back and forth between Guatemala and Guatemala City in, East, in Chicago. And so I think for us in Guatemala, the war and the peace accords that was signed in 1996, the war and militarization in the army is a reality for us, right? Folks in human rights and resistance movements and activists and human rights offenders understand really clearly the role of, you, of the United States and army in the past, the armed forces and providing aid, but also today, today, the, the Guatemala has 
the biggest and the strongest army in Central America. Because of the United States' aid, Guatemala has the strongest infrastructure of all military forces in Central America. And, you know, it's to, to go to Central America, to go walk the streets of Honduras, El Salvador, and walk the streets of Guatemala, the amount of guns that you see in the streets is a constant reminder of that history. The amount of guns that you see in private security, the, the army checkpoints, the army police collaboration checkpoints is a strong reminder of that. And so for me, that reality was very clear in Guatemala, but going to Honduras and learning that, that same history, we share that same history. Uh, it was also, it's, a, it's, it's unfortunate, it's a very sad reminder but it's 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 one of those things that when you when you see it and you're confronted by it, it's like it's it's never easy to digest. And uh, I'll I'll just I'll pass it over to to Allison. Yeah, I'll just say that the the militarized, the physical, like visual of of being in a place like Honduras and seeing both police and, and military regularly in the street manning checkpoints, but also private security guards. I think I was just in Tegucigalpa and and there's private security on every block. Uh, it seems like every private enterprise needs one, and it's part of the the cost of, of business here. I think living in Honduras, I think there was there was less that surprised me. But I do, I think one of the big things that surprised me about the, the government meetings, from what I understood, was was that the government was really open about the the challenges that exist. One of them being that there continues to be a very serious risk of another coup in in Honduras. Rodolfo, I'm forgetting his last name, but he's part of uh, Xiomara Castro's inner circle, just came out with an article recently where he talked very openly about the fact that although the there's a very there's a lot of popular support in the grassroots for a constitutional reform, that that is just not realistic under current conditions. And he very much alluded to the fact that the, the, military, the military structure is still very much aligned with the interests that led to the, to the nine coup in the first place. And so that is the context in which the delegation came, a government that very much wants to uh, push reform, but does not have the conditions to do so yet, very precisely because of the, the connections that continue to exist between um, Honduran security forces, the United States that backs them, and um, the economic elite in Honduras. I think, I think for me in... Uh... You know, let me just start with sort of like the weight, right, of U.S. geopolitics in, in these landscapes of militarization in Central America, right? This is a historic role, and I think, you know, probably many of us are familiar with it. Um, I think the when we met with President Castro, we also met with, with her cabinet, and uh, it's a it's a very it's a very interesting government because a lot of them, a lot of uh, those who are either ministers now were people who were in prison during the coup because they were this was the coup in 2009 um, that overthrew democratically elected President Celaya uh, and it was a U.S. backed coup. And so a lot of uh, the people that came out of the school that, that were protesting against it, you know, many of them are also occupying different places in government. Um, so they're not your typical government official. So, for instance, we have the human rights uh, minister, um, Natalie Roque, she's a historian. And when we met, um, you know, we were meeting with congressional delegates, right, we're meeting with uh, U.S. congressional delegates were meeting with 
the Honduran government. And, uh, you know, it was interesting to see that, for instance, Natalie Roque was constantly reminding um, U.S. officials, right, about this very tense and and just, uh, you know, violent relationship between U.S. and Honduras. And just, you know, said it like out loud, said, you know, in the 1980s, Honduras was known as the U- like USS Honduras because of this close relationship that Honduras and the U.S. had and how Honduras was this you know, counterinsurgency playing ground and really just, you know, springboard for, the, you know, destroying all the revolutionary movements in the region. And so I think it's important to just have that, you know, in mind and also as as part of the, the historical backdrop when we're thinking about current militarization in the region, because what we're seeing today is a continuation of that. Right of the of, of of the heavy militarization that happened in the eighties to fight counterinsurgency wars today, and I, I think for me something perhaps that the West surprising is that we tend to think of militarization as just as pure either pure violence, right? So like whether it's the military that are present and are and are repressing movements, you know whether that means like throwing in in the case of La Puya, for instance, in Guatemala, this community that is resisting a U.S. mine, a U.S. funded mine, you know, they ta- they talked about um, a, a, the, the kind of weaponry, right, that was deployed against them. And so, of course, right, it's, it's these instances of violence. Uh, when we're talking about militarization, that's what we want to bring to light. But militarization, I think what, you know, what this uh, delegation challenged me to think about was that militarization is not just about those episodes. It's not just about those violent acts like that. Uh, it's part of a continuum. It includes, you know, that kind of psychological abuse, right, that also results from these violent episodes. So, you know, think of in, in La Puya, for example, some of the people who suffered from, from these violent episodes, you know, it was not just the injuries, right? Like the physical injuries that they that they were that were inflicted on their bodies, but also psychological injuries. So Don Angel from La Puya was telling us about um, this friend of his who was part of the resistance movement. And after this really violent episode with the military and the Guatemalan police, you know, he suffered depression and he died. And, you know, we don't think about the, in some ways, the afterlives, right, of militarization, the kind of violence that militarization brings about is not just immediate, right? It's, it's a part of a continuum. And sometimes we don't actually see the effects of it. And so I think that for me, that was something that the delegation really captured. It was in some ways that, you know, the afterlife, right? Like the, con- the continuation, how militarization is not just an episode, but it's, it's a continuum of abuses against people. And that's important for us to be thinking of it that way too. Can I, can I, can I add something? Uh, yes. Um, yes. And, and just to, to illustrate what this means, right? For folks in El Salvador, the army represents, you know, a bloody history of repression, right? That is, again, the war, uh, death squads, assassination, uh, political prisoners. It, there's a history, right? And similar to Guatemala. For us, whenever we see the military, we immediately have a cultural association to genocide, to crimes against humanity, and to what's happening today. You go to Honduras today, 12 years of a narco dictatorship that most people in Honduras in the streets can easily identify and say, yes, we are coming out of a dictatorship that was funded and aided by a president with ties, if not, if not himself participating in not in the, in the, in the with organized crime. It's, it's all 
you know, it's it's really very much all interconnected, right? What as what Maho is illustrating is the, the the legacy of U.S. intervention in Central America, the aid that is sent to these countries, Guatemala, El Salvador, you know, the rest of Latin America, and where we are today, where we see the army in the streets. It's, it's a timeline of terror and intimidation that is designed to be that way. Is that, you know, I'm from Chicago. The police is a paramilitary. They're armed to the teeth, as they say, right? The Chicago police has so much gear on them. It doesn't seem like a police officer. It seems like an army, an army soldier. It, and that's on purpose. It's meant to intimidate. It's meant to send a message to the community. It's meant to say something. We go to El Salvador, we go to the streets of Guatemala, it's meant to do the same thing. And so again, understanding where, we, where we've come from and where we are today, the presence of militarization, uh, the military aid is, is part of the plan. Again, Alliance for Prosperity, we can talk about that so much. We can talk about the White House plan on, on, on Central America and Latin America, but tucked inside all of these things is a continuous, continuous military aid to the region for these reasons of control, for these reasons of making sure U.S. interests are protected. Thank you, Jonathan. And so just to close this section, I think that you're touching upon something that was very important, that is very important to think about, and it's this parallel between police brutality and military brutality in the United States and in Central America. Um, you know, so just to remind you, people like Congresswoman Cori Bush, right, who was a central figure in, in, in the Black Lives Matter movement, every time we would meet with communities, either in Guatemala or in Honduras, and they would share their histories of military repression and police brutality, she would constantly make a parallel. And it was, you know, it, it was very, it was very powerful because, you know, she, she would insist that these were realities that were interlinked, that it was not just that the United States was doing this abroad, it was doing it to its people, right? And so that, you know, I think that that put things into, into a great perspective because then it makes us rethink how we, how we forge bonds of solidarity between the United States and Latin America or Central America specifically, right? Where it's not just, oh, look at, you know, the poor people in Central America and how they're being attacked, right? Um, you know, let's go help them. It's that, you know, people in this country are also at the receiving end of a lot of this violence, right? And that the connections that can be drawn, um, you know, are the, the, the connections, that many connections can be drawn. Um, and it's really about, you know, people being affected by that reality of militarization that also, um, that all is also connected to the reality of militarization in Central America. So let me just, you know, stop there. Allison, do you wanna go next? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, with the with the um, incoming Biden administration and what the U.S. has has termed the uh, uh, migration crisis, there's been this uh, prioritization of Central America and of Central American development. There's, um, as you all, as Maho explained earlier, there's been a, a commitment of four billion investment into Central America to try to stem the flow of migration. These are words used by the by the Biden administration. And on the delegation, especially in Guatemala and Honduras, we, we've got to see a little bit about what, what economic development looks like in Honduras and, and Guatemala and the ways in which it, it doesn't necessarily line up with community needs, community interests, and community development. So for this question, we want to talk a little bit about 
what we're seeing coming out of the Biden administration as their approach to um, supporting a development in Central America versus what we're hearing from communities on the ground as to what they what their needs really are. And so I'd like to pass it over to Jonathan to talk a little bit about uh, what he saw in the delegation in regards to this. No, thank you, Allison. I think we can spend a whole day talking about how flawed this this approach is. And I'll keep it very simple just to introduce another element to into this conversation. There's definitely a, a healthy debate, even among grassroots community human rights defenders, a good healthy debate of what development means in a neoliberal context, right, today, with the United States' influence over the global markets, U.S. influence over local markets, and U.S. interests in every century, every Latin American country uh, being some of the most important interests for that country. Honduras is definitely not, Honduras would be one of the most important examples of that coming out of, you know, Juan Orlando Hernandez's dictatorship, having a crisis, government economic crisis, and Xiomara Castro trying to figure that out. And then Guatemala, having one of the largest indigenous populations in the continent uh, per capita, having a history, an incredible history of resistance, pushing forth community consultation processes to address any type of development plan, any type of aid, any type of anything that would touch their communities, right? And so I wanna highlight that specifically, that there is a conversation happening about what development from the perspective of any government, when the government of Guatemala says, we'd like to bring electricity to your rural community. People have 500 years of history from the state trying to come into their communities and tell them what to do. And so they, with a lot of good information, with a lot of good history, oftentimes resist. And it's not resisting the building of a road or resisting the building of uh, an electrical grid in their communities, it's resisting an imposition that doesn't take their opinions and their process, their indigenous or ancestral processes into account, right? And so again, the community consultation processes and indigenous resistance often reject any neoliberal state-minded, US-supported idea of uh, development. And again, when we look at it, as Majo said in the introduction, when you look at the White House plan, it might seem it might seem comprehensive to some, it might seem common sense to all, but the United States is 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 with one hand destabilizing countries and with the other hand giving money to USAID for economic development that gets lost in the state, that gets privatized and doesn't really ask any rural community what it really wants. Yeah, let me let me maybe just share two stories that I think really capture the effects of mega development projects in the in the region. And one is from Guatemala and and the other one is is from Honduras. Um, and so the first one is from is from La Cuchilla. So La Cuchilla is this this small community um, in southern Guatemala. And this is a community that I mean, today, right, as part of this Xinca, so the Xinca indigenous resistance against the Escobal mine. And the Escobal mine is uh, one of the largest silver mines in the world, right? It has been, it's currently stopped, uh, but there's fear that it it will continue operating. I won't give her name, but this compañera from, from Guatemala, from La Cuchilla, so she used to live there with her family, you know, and she described how living in this, this small town, you know, was just a peaceful life um, in many ways, right? It wasn't, it's not that they were rich, but they, they led a peaceful life, you know, and suddenly 
suddenly the houses started cracking. Like out of nowhere, the houses just started cracking. And so the, the main school, the main church just cracked open, you know, completely. And at first people didn't know what was happening. <laughs> Um, of course, uh, very, very soon they learned that it was because the, the mine was already operating. So they had built these underground tunnels under La Cuchilla, which is this, this small village kind of up in the mountains. And the underground tunnels right, were being used to like either move machin- machinery or just to start building these mines. And it was, it was causing all of problems, right? Ninety families had to leave. Right, like nine, this is a this is a U.S. Canadian uh, mine. Ninety families had to leave this La Cuchilla because they were scared that their houses would literally just like fall apart, right? And that they, you know, they would basically die in, in their sleep because they could crack. They just could crack any time. The compañera who was, you know, sharing this story, um, she was her her son had to migrate, and her other her other children was considering uh, migrating to the United States. So like direct effect right of a mine that was constructed in this town that completely completely unraveled the lives of the people who were who were in La Cuchilla um, and so that ju- that's just you know one example right um, of how much destruction this mine brought about none of the people who lived here agreed um, to the construction of this mine they were never consulted even though they have the right to consultation right under convention 169 Another example from Honduras, so Gilamito, and this is a Gilamito resistance camp, again, resisting a mine, also receiving funding from the United States through the Investment Development Bank. And this, uh, this one of the compañeras who was sharing, right, the kind of resistance that they're, that they're mounting in this part of Honduras was telling us about these recent you might have heard, but of the Eta and the Yota hurricanes that hit, I mean, really ravaged parts of Central America, um, November of last year. And she was saying how because so many of the rivers had been dammed, they faced flooding that they had never faced, not even during Hurricane Mitch, where like, you know, half of the country was virtually destroyed. And this was due to these dams that were constructed on, on like all of the rivers. And the one they're fighting, like their, their protection right of the Hilamito River is against the building of a hydroelectric dam. Right. So this for them, you know, it just highlighted like, you know, why they want to protect the river, why they want to oppose the construction of these projects. So those are just, you know, I just wanted to give you like a sense, right, of the, the people we were talking to, the stories that they're facing. This is what's happening. So when we read in the Biden-Harris plan that they want want to encourage more private investment, more of these kinds of development projects, then, you know, we, we were very suspicious for, for a good reason. Yeah, just to, to, to tie the, a little, these threads together a little bit. Migration in, in, from Central America is, is for a variety of reasons. One of the, the ones that is well known is, is all the counterinsurgency efforts that happened in the, in the 80s. But, you know, there's also climate change migration as, re, as a result of the United States and other of the world's major polluters. And there's also migration as a result of privatization. I think labor insecurity is, is a huge problem in, in Honduras as our displacement as a result of these extractive projects that we've been talking about. And so when we look at like the primary drivers of migration to the United States, I mean, towards the United States, what you find is a lot of historical policy that the United States has enacted. And the thing that is very discouraging about the Biden plan is that when you look at it, it's a lot of the same strategies, same logics that created the 
crisis in the first place. And so already we're seeing the the impacts of that, especially in Honduras. Kamala Harris did a, a tour to Central America, um, visited Guatemala, visited Honduras, skipped El Salvador, and um, and is very much concentrating in Honduras because it sees they see it as like one of the most reliable partners in the region, which means that a lot of money is being concentrated there. There's been an ambassador that just recently got appointed to, to Honduras, and already there are very concerning posturing coming out of that embassy. So Honduras just passed an energy reform proposal that uh, would allow them to renegotiate contracts for energy and would allow them to expropriate in areas where corporations don't want to renegotiate. And the U.S. embassy has has expressed concern over this, um, is very much pushing further privatization at a moment when Honduras is trying to nationalize its energy precisely because of, of the issues with corruption and with mismanagement that has occurred as a result of like U.S. efforts to privatize various industries in, in Honduras. And, and so we're already seeing a lot of a lot of the same in, in, in ways that are astounding, really, that lessons have not been learned yet. And so I don't know if anyone else wants to add before we close this section. I, I just, I just want to add one, uh, two things. Because this is a topic right now, I encourage you all to, to read through it. Uh, maybe not read through it, but find, find a, good, a, a good analysis, a good summary on it. And, you know, their, their idea of solutions is, is very, very peculiar, right? And, 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 but, it, but not surprising, right? Promote investment and reforms, partner with private the private sector, climate change and food security, opportunities for women and minorities. And I think the, the, the problematic thing about that is that privatization, which is a strong, strong, strong element of this, continues to take away the responsibility from the state to address these to, to address any of this, right? Like, wh- why would we need to privatize healthcare in, in Guatemala? How we do, do we not understand how the healthcare system is fail is failing in Guatemala, let alone in the United States? I mean, it, there's just a lot of irony in it. It almost it almost feels like an inside joke, right? To, to be telling Guatemala to to strengthen its climate change efforts when the United States is one of the major contributors contributing countries to this climate emergency and countries like Guatemala, the percentage of their influence uh, on the climate emergency is so minimal. Again, these suggestions for how how to help and support Central America really, as Allison said, it's like we haven't learned our lesson yet. Bob, I did want to mention El Salvador. Um, we didn't go to El Salvador, but we met with a delegation from El Salvador. And just, uh, I just wanted to sh- quickly share one critique that they were that they were making about the U.S. plan for Central America, and it has to do with the private-public partnerships. So that has that's in vogue. You know, this is sort of like paraded as a new solution also to the problems of Central America. Um, and these these pri- private-public partnerships are part of what Jonathan is also is. Is, is an element of that uh, process of privatization, Jonathan, that you're describing. Um, it is a process of privatization that we're familiar with in the U.S. as well, right? And that many of you have thoughts about and, and probably and, and, and probably oppose. Um, so it's a similar dynamic. That's something that's being criticized. Another thing that is being criticized is also just um, this focus on job employment. So it, you know, job creation is always seen as kind of like the 
you know, the solution to all problems. It's not, you know, it's not to say that there is a severe lack of employment in the region, but the ways, at least in the in which the United States envisions right, job creation is deeply tied to U.S. economic interests, for instance, in maquila production, right, in like the sweatshops. So the United States is um, the largest employer in El Salvador, for instance, with its maquilas, its sweatshops. And so the delegation from El Salvador that visited in, in Honduras also just shared some of their reservations, right, about the kind of labor exploitation that they think, you know, is being, like, is being promoted as almost a solution to, to, to the problem of poverty in the region. And these are communities and, you know, kind of like popular social movements, right, that have another vision of what El Salvador could look like, that it's not just creating precarious job opportunities that will exploit Salvadorans and that will you know, end up benefiting big U.S. companies, right? Like, you know, Hanes, all these companies that make our clothes. And, you know, so just wanted to share that also uh, because that's part of the critique that was shared with us. So it's interesting. We're doing this monitoring of USAID projects in in Honduras because there's going to be this big injection of money from USAID to Honduras. And on the USAID website, they make it very, like one of their openly stated objectives is part of their work is to open markets for the United States. And so oftentimes when you see US-led development projects in Honduras, they pitch it as a win-win, like, oh, development for you and also like more money for us. But it's very often not what is best for the community. It is what will marginally benefit them at best, but is mostly for the interest of the United States. Great example is the energy conversation in Honduras right now. Someone who works for the, the public like energy company, the national energy company says that given the contracts that are on the books, Honduras should, is producing more energy than it needs. And yet there are energy shortages all over the country, right? And when you look at the Biden plan to like double the capacity of Central America to, to produce energy, it's also tied to this project to like create a common grid across the hemisphere that would allow countries to buy and sell energy. So what we're seeing as a future is Honduras producing energy and selling it off, right, while their people don't have energy. So that's the kind of development that the United States pushes, right? It's development that that is that furthers their interests, in this case, energy security for the United States, having nothing to do with the community wants. Hilamito is a perfect local example of that, right? Where people want the Hilamito River preserved for drinking water. Honduras is going through, there are droughts popping up all over the place. Atlantida doesn't have one, but they might in the future, and they want that river preserved for drinking water. They want a small hydroelectric project that would allow the water to get to their communities. And yet, right, that community will is being brutally repressed to allow for a huge hydroelectric dam that would allow this company to make money. And those are the kinds of projects that the United States backs. And you'll see examples of that all over the place where you see United, the United States pushing a project. It's for their interests, it's not for community interests. And so it's not that communities are against development, it's that they want autonomy over what that development looks like, and United States partnerships do not allow for that. That was a really engaging and thought-provoking discussion. The Hilamito resistance was mentioned several times, and for those that want some more background on that conflict and the resistance and the U.S.'s role, please check out episode 26, COP26, Greenwashing in the Hilamito Dam Project, is what that episode is called. Because of time limitations, today's discussion that I played was just a portion of the report back given by activists that were part of the congressional trip in March. There's also a Spanish presentation that was part of it. I will link to all the videos in the show notes. 
People can also go to School of the Americas Watch YouTube channel and check them out there directly. That's the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Show notes are at HondurasNow.org. I'm Karen Spring, your host. Until next time, hasta pronto. Si morimos pensando en tu amor, defendiendo tu santa bandera, y en tus pilegas gloriosos cubiertos, serán muchos Honduras tus muertos, pero todos caerán con honor.